Welcome back to Two Rivers, Two Takes, everyone. I'm Daryl. And I'm Philip. We're here with episode three coverage of the Wheel of Time TV series. So this is the third episode that they fed out on the same day. So everything that we have been talking about all came out on November 19th. And this is how they really wanted to hook us in. So the first two episodes were building up to this because they think that this episode is the one that will make us care enough about this to watch it for the rest of the season. Yes, and we get one of our missing pieces from our traveling group in this episode, which is very exciting. We get Tom Marilyn. Yeah, but first we crash right into the resolution of how episode two left off. And crash is a great word because Matt and Rand crashed out of a wall and Perrin and Egwene crashed slash dove into the river as they were fleeing Shadar Logoth from the evil that was trying to consume them. And even before then, before the credits even roll, we see what happens to Nynaeve in the midst of that battle in the Two Rivers. Yes, she showed up with a knife to Lan's throat at the end of the last episode, leaving everyone to ask, how did she survive? And we see as she is dragged away by a Trolloc, who then finds an injured Trolloc, and at first you're like, oh, it's so nice, it's going to help its friend, and then it eats its friend. It's true. It plays into this idea that Trollocs are sort of inherently lazy and always hungry, and so it saw its wounded friend as a tasty meal. Because honestly, up above the Blight, that's probably all that they had to eat was each other. And so... He went for the familiar food, snacked away. It seemed very juicy, perhaps might be a word yeah. to describe it. <laughs> um, there was definitely some sounds. Maybe if people are into ASMR, maybe they could make that as a special Wheel of Time ASMR track where it's just some gushy sounds. Fun fact, if you do like AMSR... At the end of one of the short track episodes, when they had lower decks from different ships, they had lower decks of a Borg cube. So there's an hour of AMSR sounds. It's very from, soothing. From the Borg. Yes, just some ship sounds. Um, but we get Nenave uh, running for her life. She gets to the sacred pool. What makes it sacred, we still don't know. But we, what we do know is Nenave is super smart, works with what she's got, outsmarts this Trolloc, and uses its own knife against it to survive. Is this pool even sacred anymore? I mean, a Trolloc just died in it, and we know that they're smelly and filthy, so I don't think there's any coming back for this cave. No, they're going to need like a lot of Clorox if they want to purify it, get some pool shock, throw that in there, and maybe after it clears out. Yeah, they maybe just find a new pool. Um, Rand pulling his best Leo DiCaprio from Titanic, where he's just screaming some names out. But instead of screaming out for Rose, he's screaming out for Egwene. And we're back to the back and forth. Now he really loves Egwene and misses her and is shouting. And Matt's like, what are you doing, you fool? You are screaming, and we are being pursued by things. Thank you, Matt, for injecting some common sense into this situation. We get this weird 
dynamic, as you say, where Rand is going to go where Egwene is, even though he was so opposed to going to Tar Valen in the previous episode. But since she's there, it's like he's back in puppy dog eye mode. Yeah, I don't know. And we cut to Egwene and Perrin being together. And she sort of expresses the same thing this episode, that she's going to go where Rand goes. And it just causes me to throw my hands up and be like, this... She's better than that. She is, and it's injecting a romantic angle into the show. And now that I'm thinking more about it, it it was really missing in the books. Like, it doesn't need to rely on that sort of storyline to move it forward. And I think it's a deliberate move by the writers here to have a different sort of storyline for people to be attracted to. It, in the books, was a will-they-won't-they? I don't know. I feel the funny ways about her. But then, as they begin to make their decisions and sort of become who they'll be, they recognize in each other that they're not the same people that they were, and they're able to acknowledge that and move on in sort of a nice, clean fashion. Like... Rand and Egwene, by the end of the third book, know that their lives are taking them in different directions, and they respect that. And but I sort of want that here, but this, any progress we make, it's like one step forward and two steps back. And it's brought up constantly. I mean, this is the third episode we've talked about it in both of our previous episodes, where it, this romantic wink is something that is being relied upon as a storytelling device. And... It is, I think it's definitely trying to bring in a demographic that really enjoys that and needs that in what they view. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. I watch plenty of shows where you, uh, it's based around romantic entanglements and things like that. Um, here, I don't know. We have a lot going on. I don't know if we need it in this show. Right. And I feel like it'd almost be better for the characters to be able to have those moments of acknowledging the path the other person is on and respecting that, which, frankly, our world sort of needs that sort of respect for boundaries. Yeah. Like, people need to recognize that more as an honest and valid thing. So, hopefully it'll come back later and we'll get that resolution and we'll get that, I know your life is taking you in a different path. I wish you the best, like... Yeah. As your friend... I respect your decision. And yeah. I think you're wonderful still. Uh, but Egwene uses the power to light a fire. Yeah, it's a great moment with Perrin where he's like trying his hardest to get his dagger and flint to light a little flame. And Egwene sees how much he's struggling. He cut his thumb already on it. And so she tries her method to start a fire. Was it her? Was it him? We don't know. It's pretty awesome that she has learned enough to be able to do that and it sort of sets up oh i'm learning so much and then when she learns how much she needs to learn later on it's it's pretty great um of all the different applications the different skills that come with the power it's more than just simply trying to light a campfire but for her second go at it good for her yeah she did phenomenal and she wasn't being guided by Moraine, and we didn't see any training beyond that one night that they were together. Right. She has She's a quick study, and that is one of the hallmarks of her character. Um, between her and Nynaeve, 
they only need to see something done once and they're able to replicate it. And so this was, I thought, wonderful for her. She's advancing. She's being able to help her friend. And I always, at first I was confused by the pairings, but I'm really glad that it's her and Perrin. I think that he is methodical enough, respectful enough, and to trust her opinions, and she does the same for him, and it's they work well together. So Moraine is not doing well, and I think that's an understatement. They're, she She's a real pale, corpsey-looking broad laying on some rocks. Some very mossy rocks. It, it's yeah. very beautiful, um, but it is not beautiful in her wound. And Dr. Um, Pimple Popper, Nynaeve herself decides to show uh, her skills with herbs. So she makes a poultice and she's like, yeah, hey, don't you feel what she feels? Because this isn't going to feel great. And she um, sort of expresses the wound to get what's building up out. And it's real gross looking. It is. And she's very no-nonsense about it. She gets the job done. She's very professional, even though she's only been wisdom for a few years probably built up from people saying, oh, you're too young to be a wisdom. So she has to be that good and to have that level of skill. I was sort of hoping that in her, even though she's helping Moraine, her rage at Moraine for what she sees as absconding with her villagers would have allowed her to channel some and use her healing, capital H. (laughs) But she works her herbs she sort of shows it off to Lan and instead of getting a little bit more backstory of my dad taught me how to track I'm that's how I'm so good at it we know that that can't be a thing because we know now that she was raised by the previous wisdom in the village and so she recognizes that she doesn't have to answer to Lan she doesn't have to answer his questions he can ask all he wants but she doesn't have to answer. And something we both sort of cringed at at the beginning of this episode is she asked, where are my friends? And the way that the wisdom is structured, she she's responsible for them. I don't think that she would have asked, where are my friends? No, the wisdom is such a leadership position set apart from the villagers that they aren't her friends. They're more of her wards, her villagers, her people. Yeah, like, her charges. Her, yes. She, even though she's connected to them, she's still removed from them. And I thought they had built that up from Egg explained to Matt that she was going to become an apprentice, and, that, and he was like, oh, that's a lonely life. Yeah. It created that sort of separation, and so for her to be like, where are my friends... She wasn't particularly friendly with them. Yeah. And even in the books, she was more liable to stare down Matt and thump him over the head for whatever prank he had just done um, versus ever calling him a friend. Perrin, we're getting this undercurrent of wolves, and he has a nightmare where you can see the dark one in the background with his fiery eyes, but he finds his wife's zombie corpse being eaten by a wolf and this leads into a wolf chase through a thicket that is mysteriously smoky it is so smoky and it's a good it's a decent plot device like a yes. comments on it even to say like well 
lose our way. So clearly these wolves are helping again. They're pushing Perrin and Egwene through the fog in the direction that they need to go, where they'll find some wagon tracks. And these wolves are clearly hounding Perrin, har har, <laughs> and helping in ways that he doesn't seem to recognize as help, but it definitely is. And for people who've read the books and know a little bit about Wolf Brothers, like, they are helping. He just doesn't have the guidance to recognize it yet. We catch up with Rand and Matt finding a village. Yeah, and you know where they're not? They're not on a boat, (laughs) which was part of... um, the books they had escaped the city get on a boat that brings them down to Whitebridge where they would see if a little bit more of age of one age of legends type things the artifacts this, like yes. the large statues carved into the banks Whitebridge itself um, but no they wander into this town and it's a dirty little village I was having feelings about it and then when you pointed out that it's a TV series. It doesn't have a whole lot of time. And so it's an amalgamation of Fairlin, which was the mining town to the north of the two rivers, plus Four Kings. And so there's some homage to that. Four Kings is is the name of the inn. But to get the plot to advance at TV speed, they had to combine all these things together. Yeah, and we see that there is a corpse in a cage. Matt is really eyeing up this crystal, so um, maybe he's like me, and he has some crystals at his bedside to help out with life. Um, But this is another sort of Matt wants to loot the corpse sort of moment. Um, Very Elder Scrolls. And they roll into the inn, in this town and they see a glee man who is not a glee man because he sings a real slow depressing song it's something that we mentioned in our recap of the first episode where it feels very dark and it's sort of like the manifestation of where we are culturally where you can't just have happy-go-lucky things it has to be dark and gritty and have an edge and so of all the things that they could have given that gritty edge to, I was actually kind of disappointed in what they did to Tom Marilyn. Because in the books, he has these, like, he's iconic. He has these big mustaches that he blows out in frustration. He constantly talks up how good he is. He can do all these songs and verses. He knows all the songs. He can do them in high chant. Not like any other tavern went singing a song. And it's all about showmanship for him. Like, he knows how good he is. He tries to build up a crowd worthy of his performance before he actually expends the energy to perform. Yeah. And instead, we get this sort of drab dude without mustaches. With a regular guitar. He has his acoustic with him. No flute, no harp, no cloak full of patches that flutters in the breeze to announce that he's a gleeman. Like... Great, you've got a colorful lining in your drabby brown coat. Like, that needs to be reversible. Like, please tell me it's a reversible coat so that when he goes into a village, he shouldn't have to explain that he's a gleeman. It should be evident by 
the fluttering colors of his cloak. Um, yeah, it's... I want to see if they're going to make his character more joyful, because nothing we see in this episode expresses that to me. No, and it's something that's dark and gritty that doesn't have to be dark and gritty. Like, if you came from a high court bard situation and now you're traveling Gleeman, like, there's no sense of, like, what a PBS special would call giving him airs. Mm. Like, that's part of that character, but it's absent here. He's just... Yeah. gritty and he raspy. is gritty he even pickpockets matt and doesn't give the money back he's like that's my tip and i'll keep the rest of it because i just gave you a life lesson rude yeah um so Egwene and perrin are driven to the wagon tracks they decide to follow them into some more mist and then we cut away from them again um because we we're really focused on what's happening with Matt and Rand right now. Yeah, they got a lot of airtime this episode. Um, so they get a room together, and the innkeeper is like, oh, well, it's soundproof in here, so you can have some slap and tickle. And I thought it was good that they included the possibility of a gay relationship. Right, because that's absent in the books until you get towards the end, and when you do get it, then it falls into the trope of, oh, he died. So it was fun that it was referenced here, and it's normalized. It's, right. It's it, very conversational. It's Rand plays it off as, uh, har har, if I wanted a guy, I could do a whole lot better. Yeah. It wasn't a no homo moment, Which thankfully. Is, yeah. That would have, I feel, driven us up the wall as yeah. two gay guys. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, Egwene and Perrin, they're talking with these traveling folk. Um, yes, there's no Elias, which is unfortunate. Um, so Elias is a character that they encounter first, and he sort of knows the culture of the traveling people, so he's able to sort of smooth their transition to being part of this camp. He becomes a guide for the two of them in both helping Perrin with his wolf brotherness, because Elias is a full wolf brother. He understands the wolves, how to communicate what the dreams are and instead um we don't get that and we get at least a good way for them to find the tuatha on like they use their heads when they found the wagon tracks parents like we should be cautious we could stay a little bit back until we know who they are he's using his head which is great because they know that not everyone that they meet will be helpful as evidenced by their interactions with the white cloaks in the previous episode Lan leaves Moraine and Nynaeve together to go find help. Risky move on his part, because Nynaeve is pissed. Yeah, so um, he's off on a little mini-adventure, a side quest, if you will, to find some help. And, um, and just rides away. Yep, just rides away for a while. Then he sees some tents, and we are left hanging. Um we cut back to the Tuatha An and Perrin and Egwene. And this is another casualty, I think, of the dark and grittiness that doesn't have to be dark and gritty. The traveling people, the tinkers, are supposed to have these bright, vibrant, very often clashing colors and patterns. 
the books make it sound like if you look at them too long, you'll get a headache because nothing matches. Everything clashes. Yeah. It's like bright, bright oranges, purples, pinks, yellows. And instead, we get people who don't have that. It's They're more subdued. Like, Loxana Troy from Star Trek, our favorite character, <laughs> is so flamboyant, so gregarious, and her outfits reflect that. And then you see her in an episode in just a plain brown dress, and you know that something is wrong. And instead of getting the full Waxana, we're getting the subdued version of these outfits. And... Yeah, it wasn't as fun and spunky as I was hoping that we would see from them. And what I, the aspect I did like is that they want to take care of them. And they're yes. like, you know, when you're with us, you're one of us. So it sharing our food sharing our safety which is on brand and in that respect they did a really good job of translating the tinkers onto the screen from the page they're very welcoming they have their big dogs but those big dogs are just to bark and to be loud they're not attack dogs at all and the traveling people i'm hoping that we learn shortly that they follow the way of the leaf which is a total pacifism worldview yeah, they're basically the hippies of this world. They are not interested in war. They don't want to have any negative vibes. Well, it's not necessarily vibes. Like, it's anathema for them to even pick up a sword or use anything as a weapon. The Way of the Leaf does not allow for any sort of self-defense in that way. Hmm. They are the tree trunk that dulls the axe. The trunk doesn't fight back against it. The axe just wears itself out. And so it's a hard life where you can't defend yourself in any way. The only defense that they have is their wagons and to run. Yeah. If there's something that happens. Um, and that's... But we don't, we're missing that sort of detail yet. I'm hoping because the episode ends with Perrin and Egwene still there, mm -hmm. that in the next episode we do get that added layer. So maybe it's just like a slow intro instead of just overwhelming us with the details. Yeah, I hope so too. Um, and that's really the last we see of them for this episode. So they're uh, eating really well. Um, yes. <laughs> and uh, we transition to, I think at this point, we see Matt and Tom cutting down this body from the cage and yes. giving it a burial. They get some detail, like Tom explains who the ale are, that you only need to be worried about them if you can't see their face. They won't, that's when they're ready, ready to, to kill. kill. Yeah. Um, but that they're warriors and that he was clearly caught unawares if he was captured by this village. And he's, Tom seems very nonplussed by the whole loot the body situation. Yeah, he's like, uh, do what you will, but you're going to help me bury him. Yeah, so there's a, a little spark of common decency in there where they lay this body to rest. Meanwhile, Rand has been having a very illuminating conversation with the innkeeper, who is revealed to be a dark friend, or fiend. <laughs> I'm just going to say dark fiend, because they are not good people. They have sold their souls to the dark one, and are committed to chaos and harm with no respect for other people so this dark fiend had been given orders to find and capture the folks in the two rivers and the fact that she had found two of them and was had captured one 
Maybe not the best move to be in the room with him mm. as she locks him in. Yeah. Because, girl, how are you going to get out? Yeah. But in the books, this is fairly true to form. Matt and Rand had gotten cornered, and it becomes the first use of the power by one of them in the books. We don't necessarily get that. Instead, we get a miraculous save by Tom and his knives, which is true to form in the books. Yeah. So that was a good touch. Yeah, so uh, Tom always has literally some tricks up his sleeve uh, in the form of daggers and knives that he can toss very well. And he uses that to great effect through her throat. Yes. And maybe this is a good point where Matt begins to learn from Tom how to do that. He will eventually pick up on knives as his best defense in his charm offensive. Hmm. And so that tracks and works out well. So that's a, that was a good moment. Um, one of the things that we didn't see much common sense applied to was they didn't go back for their stuff. Who, if Rand shows up in a coat when he clearly left the coat at the inn, when they were like, we gotta go. Like, either show him going back and having some sense to get his coat and his bow, or he can't wear it for the rest of the trip and has to go find a new cloak to keep warm. Well, this sort of goes along with what we said in the first episode of the season where they just peace out from the two rivers. We don't see them... Provisioning. Yeah, and especially since Rand lived out on a farm, that would have been even more for him to go back to his house to get stuff. We, We don't know how he has his stuff. It might just be some extras that were in the village that he took along with him. But as they're running away and we're like, dude, get your coat, get your bow. Yeah. Especially because for a two rivers person to not be without a bow is odd. Like their archery is pretty top notch. Hard, yeah. hard. Um, and so like for other characters to have such great common sense and then for this moment to not was a little bit rough um but who knows it may make sense with having to leave the town after tom just killed the innkeeper yeah that's true and the townsfolk really didn't bat an eye when she was chasing rand around they're just like oh okay well yeah as if that happened every day so um they obviously see a lot of shady stuff happening in this village and are nonplussed by it. Yes. Which makes you wonder, like, is that the whole village that is dark fiends or are they just certain people? We see later on throughout the books that there isn't really a whole town of them, except in one particular case, north of the Blight. Mm. But it's always just like individuals and for one to reveal themselves was a bold choice. Yeah. We end this episode with the payoff to Land Side Quest, where he has found some help and it's other eyes to die. And this is a curious moment for us because we saw that there are borders in front of this procession. We get Leandrin. Ugh. Ugh. Um, She's the one from the first episode that yes. was chasing down this dude who could channel. And, and she blocked a whole, like, mountain pass crevasse thing. Like, she caved it in, like, that road is no longer usable, which is, I feel, not helpful. But she 
has a very narrow view of the world and other people in it. She's like the grown-up Nellie Olson from Little House on the Prairie, where she just instantly inspires dislike from the viewer. You, I don't know if anyone would like this character from what they've seen of her, and we haven't seen a whole lot. We just get a vibe from her. And it matches the books, and to that, her credit, she does a great job, and the costuming folks do a great job. She still has her little braids. She still has her little, like, I don't know why they always use rosebud mouth as a descriptor in the books, because that seems like there are better words. But she still has her bold red lip. Yeah. And that haughtiness that sort of most reds have, which is why they're not really liked in the tower. So it was pretty surprising to see warders. It was really surprising to see greens, because we know that red... ASDI don't have warders. Greens are the only ones that'll have more than one, possibly married to more than one. And from the trailers, we know that we're going to get more info on the politics of the Ajas. Mm-hmm. But for there to be greens to be helping reds, like they are, greens and blues are much more closely aligned in their involvement in the world, and they're usually at odds with the reds. And when we saw that opening scene of the series where they're galloping after this guy there are only reds in that scene there were no other ajas so they somehow picked up some more sisters along the way after they have this dude thrown into a cage i think it's different the dude was just like some guy who could channel but this in the cage is logain who had proclaimed himself as the dragon reborn and the Red saw as a false dragon. And since they have a bit of a different protocol with someone claiming to be the dragon, they have to take that person to the tower, shielded but not severed from the source. So he can't channel. He's just sitting there in a cage. Um, It's aligned with the books. He is led through the capital city of Andor, Camelin, in a cage, and the crowd just goes silent in the presence of who can channel, which sort of lends weight to what fear a false dragon yeah. or a dragon can inspire, false or not. And so him caged is on brand, and because he's a false dragon, I think he's separate. I think the man in the first episode was gentled on the spot. Oh, okay. And severed from the source. Okay. So when you're... Gentled, if you're a dude, or severed, stilled, if you're a woman, it means you can never touch the source again. You can sense that it's there, but it might as well be the sun and us, regular people. Mm. You can feel it. You can't embrace it. You can't channel it. All your abilities are gone that it had conferred, like the listening to the wind would have disappeared. Mm-hmm. And for an ASDI who had taken oaths, those O's sort of mess with your appearance. It gives you that ageless look that's described, which I feel they do a good job in the show of showing that. Um, So the aging slows. They get this look about them. But when they're severed, that goes away. They're no longer bound by the three O's, and um, their appearance changes slightly. All right. So that's where we leave off. Um, 
We hope that Moraine is going to get some help next episode and be healed. And we leave our party separated still. They are not together. Right. And when I was reading these books the first time way back when, I was like, how? What? But the Fellowship always stayed together until the very end. And the idea that it would be split and then come back together was so... It was the first time I had encountered it. Mm. So I'm excited for how that comes back together in the show. Um, and for as much as we gripe about the dark, gritty aspects of it, I thought there was a lot of really good moments in here with the characters, people being on brand, still having some of their token iconic moments. But yeah, it was a solid episode. All right. I think so too. It was a good episode to lead us into the middle of the season so we have i think there are eight total episodes this season and we have one per week until december 24th i think is the season finale so they are moving along very quickly by now we have covered several hundred pages at least of the original material and we who knows how far they're going to go. I've heard rumblings that they could dip into even the third book a little bit. So that's a lot of material to cover, but they're doing the pacing, I think, pretty correctly for a TV series. Yeah, I am also hoping that we get more murmurs and rumors of the Dark One is trying to blind the eye of the world. Mm. A very cryptic message that comes up several times that Moraine will understand what that means and where they need to go it hasn't happened yet so i'm curious and hopeful of what that's going to look like when we do get that and from how many different sources do we get the idea that the dark one is targeting the eye of the world so yeah so who was your woolhead of the week for this episode i am choosing dinah the innkeeper oh like, you don't lock yourself in with the person that you're trying to kidnap. Like, what are you thinking? And I am going to go with that same scene, but say Rand. Because Rand, you know that you're being chased. You just had Matt warn you not to scream at the top of your lungs off of a mountain. And you're allowing yourself to be separated from the only person you know and trust. And be shut into this room with a woman who, at the very least could take advantage of you as a traveler, like conk you over the head and steal everything, could have you locked up in a cage. Like, you already saw a dead dude in a cage on the way into this town. So, why are you so trusting? Yeah, he he should have been on red alert the entire time. Yeah, so uh, on both sides of that scene, it sounds like we are agreed some very dumb decisions by these two characters. Yeah, she did get some good development in the app. Like, I appreciated that she name-dropped some of the marvels of the world mm. to see an Ogier steading. She wanted to see the Stone of Terror. Um, and she had was using her story to sort of lull Rand in, and she was great up until the point that she revealed herself as... A dark fiend. Yeah, I really liked the character. It, they did really good development with her in the short amount of time that we knew her. Right. So it's too bad. I mean, R.I.P. Yes. R.I.P. Dino. 
All right. So everyone, if you want to join in the conversation, make sure to hit us up on Instagram at Two Rivers Two Takes. Let us know who your woolhead of the episode is, what you were surprised by, what you loved. And what you hope to see coming up in the next episode. I mean, we had these first three and what a luxury it is when they dump massive amounts of episodes in your lap and you can enjoy them and binge them. Now we have to wait week to week before we see what's happening next. So um, the next few days are going to be rough until we get that. It's going to be a long trip to Friday. It is. So until then, we hope to see you online and feel free to let us know what you feel, rate, review, subscribe to this podcast, and we'll chat soon. Take care. Bye. And with the mail channeling, you need to really incorporate what was going on with them. So the So that way they can help preserve their image of that is on that that's part of what we get with the ASDI and their internal politics. Oh, that's fine. So we get Leandrin trying to pump information out of Nynaeve. Why is Moraine there? Blues are these sneaky little spies everywhere. So it adds another dimension to the and the Ajas. Blues are more political, keeping tabs on what's happening out in the world. is the power and we had this idea of Leandrin like it's just not a nice person like anytime there's a statement directed towards her it's like oh you yeah yeah I, I still don't like her I think even seeing her contributing to shielding Loghain she still really is just like this she gives off some nasty vibes. Yes. That even the other Reds, I mean, we haven't heard another Red speak. They've just been her backup <laughs> band, basically. Right. Um, so they're like the members of Destiny's Child that were fired before yeah. we got Michelle on board. So they're just sort of there. They're filling some space, I feel. And Leandrin includes all these barbs into some of her comments, like the to any woman. Like, keeping a distance from any of the guys in the camp, which is so different than the Greens. Alana has two warders, and she's married to 
probably both of them. Yeah, good for her. Yeah, and it's finally a poly relationship where the woman and multiple men, I feel like we usually get the other side of that. Yeah. So, good for Alana. I really like her as a character. Her dialogue with Moraine, her strength. She has the Arafelin bells in her hair. I think I thought she was Kandori before. Mm. But I think she's Arafelin because they mentioned her having a temper and that being associated with Arafelin folks. Um, so if we get back on track to the pro- <laughs> progression of the episode, um, we got some warders talking. We get a little bit of dimension about their bond, how it's so close. And we see what happens when that bond snaps at the end of the episode. Karini and her warder are super tight. They're, they work together as a team to try and gather information as to, like, why is there this blue wandering out the woods with this random villager? Like, that doesn't make sense. Fair question. And how Moraine's interactions with other ASA are super guarded. Even greens and blues and greens get to along really well. Yeah. But the motivation is unknown. And so that's what Karini's sort of worried about. Um, we move on to the Tinkers, who are a little bit more colorful. And we talked about this in previous episodes where we s- were anticipating needing a drama mean to look at them. Yeah. <laughs> like their color patterns and brightness should be off the charts. And it's still pretty subdued. Even when they're just walking through, even when they're dancing, like it's not quite as contrasting and clashing. Yeah, I thought it would be more of a kaleidoscope. Right. And we, we, we get that dark, gritty version of a kaleidoscope. Yeah. Um, Egwene and Perrin don't really trust the Tinkers, but Aram is laying on the charm on them, helping to provide some background. Um, yeah, it's important background, too. And um, we get the whole way of the leaf thing, which we talked about previously. It's really uh, gone into in-depth in a couple different scenes in this right. episode. Um, that It's really pacifism. And um, it they want nothing to do with any sort of violence. Or weapons. Like They don't yeah. even want to touch anything that could harm another. We move on to Tom, Matt, and Rand. And Matt has this odd role reversal from the book. Rand is acting a lot more suspicious of Tom. And it should be Matt being super suspicious of who is this person, why are they helping us, there must be some ulterior motive, either because of his nature or the dagger from Shadar Logoth acting through him and just hyping up his suspicious nature. Yeah. And in this case, it's Rand asking those questions. And the idea that the Dark Friend was told there could be one of five as the dragon... Matt doesn't, and Rand don't know that Nynaeve is still alive. Right. So that's why they're like, who could be number five? It's very Cylon, fi- who, is, who are the final five mm. from Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> uh, we get back to Alana and Moraine, and Alana's actually a friend for Moraine, but Moraine is still super guarded around her. Yeah, they, she won't even talk about her past with her. Right. And... And it's very much like a, don't try to be friends with me. Like, cool, we knew each other 20 years ago when we were novices, but we don't have that connection anymore. 
And I do like the, you could have been a blue, and Alana's like, absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And we get this curious interaction where we get some of the physics of the power, and they're talking about how they can feel the strength of Loghain. And I think this only makes sense if you interpret it as to how much he's battering against the shield, trying to reach the power. And for that should give Alana and Moraine a sense for how strong he is. And Alana and Moraine are pretty strong. They're up there in terms of strength in the tower. But for them to struggle so much, um, that's a way that a woman can sense someone else's power is how hard they're beating against a shield. If it's otherwise, they would not be able to tell how strong he is. Yeah. Like. Alana mentions not being able to see the weavings of a man, which is true, which, and it goes both ways. A man should only be able to feel some goosebumps if there's a woman channeling around him, mm-hmm. versus a woman would have no idea if a man is channeling around her, unless she's trying to shield him and her shield comes undone because of how strong he is. Right. So, we get a little bit more detail about the power. And then we move on to the um, Leanne and, and Nynaeve scene. One thing that I liked about this scene, too, is that you have these different countries and these different cultures, and Leandrin in the books comes from Terabon, and they talk about her in many braids all the time. So when she walks up to Nynaeve and says, I like your braid, that w- I thought that was a nice nod. homage yeah. and a nod to the fact that... Um, to the characterization of Leandrin in the books, which was nice. And Nynaeve can already tell what sort of person Leandrin is. She's like, that woman's a snake. Yeah, which she's not wrong. Yeah. I, I mean, we're on the same page, Nynaeve and I. We're, we don't like her. And in the margins of my notes, I made a little heart for how great I think Zoe Robbins is as Nynaeve. Yes. Especially in this episode. Um, but also Barney Harris as Matt. And he gets recast, which is a curious choice, because I think he's doing well with Matt right now. Yeah, and Amazon, no one included in the production has really spoken about why he's gone. Right. So uh, that feels real, uh, like something must have gone very poorly for it hit them to summarily fire him before the first season even aired and recast him and announce that recasting before the first season. So right. I think they are really downplaying his acting abilities, maybe, um, it, at least in the promotional stuff, um, which is fine. It's an ensemble cast. You're not going to get uh, all the characters getting the spotlight. I think they're going to continue avoiding giving him the spotlight, though, like the social media posts from the official Instagram and Facebook. Um, It's I haven't really seen anything about Matt. So, uh, I mean, we can't really comment because we have no idea why he was recast, but he is uh, lending a complexity to this character that is very one-note by this point in the books. Right, and he sort of does get overshadowed by Rand. Like, as they break off into pairs, Rand sort of becomes primary versus Egwene and Perrin who basically are equals, I feel, plot-wise. So they get to a farm. 
uh, who is very suspicious of them. And this is where they sort of build in all these parts from the book where Matt and Rand have to trade work for shelter. Um, they do come across a farm in the book. It was later on after Tom had fought the Fade. And instead of being an older daughter who becomes sort of smitten with the two of them before moving on to the tower, it's a much younger girl who has a nice moment with Matt um, who reminds him of her, his sisters. So that was nice. And a little Brigitte yes. doll. Um, so Brigitte is one of the famed heroes, capital H, of this world who gets spun out multiple times. And so there's all these different stories of her, sometimes with a dif different name, but she always has a bow. She always has her braids. Um, she is a basically a badass hero. And so that was a nice little seed that gets planted with this little girl. We are back with the Tinkers. We get more of the Way of the Leaf. In the books, I really liked the metaphor where the people doing violence is an axe, and no matter how long you use the axe, it eventually gets dull and unusable, mm. even if it cuts down so many trees and trees being people in this metaphor. So, th But they didn't go with that simile. They went with sort of the dichotomy of the way to get revenge on death is to live, and the way to get revenge on violence is to be peaceful. Mm, so yeah. it's, it's still like a darker, grittier view of the way of the leaf, I feel. It was yeah. an interesting take for them to go with, like, here's this dark... How I'm going to be vengeful is to be peaceful instead of peace for the sake of peace yeah so uh, it is a really good story that's told about what isla and her daughter daughter yeah and how aram is yeah. there um and they uh basic uh, once they reach a certain age as a tinker they go out into the world it's very amish um so it's and, a very american amish sort of thing where it's rumspringa and for people who like the Mass Effect games, it's very Quarian, sending people out to interact with the world and then make their way back again. And it also sort of fits into the background of how the Tinkers still exist as a people. You'd think pacifists wouldn't last long in this world, but they draw people to them. Like, people convert to the way of the leaf, and that's where you would otherwise get these stories of Tinker stealing children. Hmm. Um, it's because people would voluntarily go to be with the Tinkers. So that was some good world building that we appreciated. And transition back to Matt, Tom, and Rand. We get the Owen story from Tom. His nephew, like... Could channel in some capacity. And the Reds found Owen, gentled him, and with anyone who is severed from the power... are brighter you can feel the cracks in the ground around you you have these heightened senses everything becomes better there's a joy to it and having known that joy and then never being able to do it again is too much for people so that's part of the story and why tom wants to protect matt so much mm -hmm. so because they they at this point um matt is being corrupted is what they think 
that by the power yes versus the evil shadar logoth which was hanging out in that dagger and yeah. it turns into this like goopy mossy slimy mold the same sort of thing that we saw in the city but this time it's coming out of matt's mouth yeah it's real gross looking <laughs> right and it is if you're doing dark wispy things for the corruption on the power you need to have a different visual evil, yeah yeah a different visual for the evil shadar logoth because despite them both being evil they're not the same thing yeah and they don't even like each other they're like my brand of evil is not your brand of evil <laughs> we go back to karini and moraine Water fire um, land tries to keep some of the details hidden and Nynaeve just sort of plays it off like she holds her own in this group of warders who are prying her for information she's like i tracked land har 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 <laughs> and gains all these brownie points with the people around her yeah it was a really nice moment of them relaxing it's one of the few sort of chill moments we get in this episode um because it is so action-packed that it is one thing to another to another it's sort of a breather that we're getting right here but still rich in detail. We get the Aesidae as the servants of all. We get the relationship between Warder and Aesidae. We get Alana's poly situation going on. Yeah. And her Warders seem fun. Yeah. Still very deadly, but also still fun. Yeah. So that was really nice. Um, they seem great. And... You get these different relationships between Aesidae and Warders. Moraine and Lan, while very close, they're still very professional. Alana's married to her Warders. Mm -hmm. Leandrin's just like, we don't do anything to do with men. <laughs> and you get this moment between Moraine and Lan where she finally relaxes a little and they have a frank conversation. He plays it off as, I drank and now through the bond you're feeling things stronger. But in the books, Moraine is always so schooled in her features, like unreadable, inscrutable. Mm -hmm. And this is a nice moment where she can actually have some more expression than just being coy around her sisters. It's her being authentic and f reacting, reflecting. The My favorite line from this is that the Dark One doesn't know who the dragon is either, which... It's also true to the books. I'm really looking forward to the dream where there's just three dis indistinct wax figures and one of, in this case, the five instead of the three in the books, picks up the figure to identify themselves and the dragon and the dark one is like, oh, now I know who one of you is. So yeah. like, that's a nice plot point and I'm really happy that they're continuing it through. Yeah, it's basically a race to figure out who the dragon reborn is. So exactly. that it... It, it, so that individual can be used. Right. The Dark One has their own plans for yep. the dragon. Because um, at this point, like, in the lore, the Dark One is still imprisoned. It's weakening. But what Luz Theron The prison Telemann, is weakening, not the Dark One is weakening. Oh, yes. The prison that was created by Luz Theron Telamon, which is what allowed the Dark One to corrupt the male side of the power, is coming undone ever so slowly. Um, so after this moment, we move back to the Tinkers, they're dancing, we learn about the song, and when I reread the prologue for 
the Eye of the World, where we talk to Luz Theron Telamon um, back in the Age of Legends, and he's talking about, do you have the voice? Capital T, capital V. <laughs> Are you ready to sing? Capital S. He's, he's referring to singing the song, and so... After the breaking of the world, the song is lost, but the Tinkers are still searching for it. And even though Aram doesn't really believe in it, it's still the tradition. And eventually, I'm trying to do this without dropping spoilers, we learn that there are the Tuatha'an, the Tinkers, are one side of a coin, and there's another side. But this helps fill out the Tuatha'an perspective so that when they eventually become contrasted with another group, it makes a lot of sense mm -hmm. and it fills in a lot of the backstory. So I thought that was good. I I loved the scenes in the books where they're talking about singing and where, or where singing is witnessed. Mm -hmm. I just think that's super cool. So I like that they included this in the show and are placing some importance on the song, especially in a, where they had to condense so much to make it fit a TV format. Yeah. They're really devoting a lot of screen time to this concept right. and this group of people. And true to Aram's character, he is turning the charm factor up even more on Egwene. So that's fun. We go back to Tom, Matt, and Rand. And Rand's trying to be supportive before blowing out a candle and transitioning to a dream sequence. Yes. Where we get Perrin, we get Matt, we get Rand sort of all interacting to some extent together. Mm-hmm. Perrin is hammering at someone, and Matt and Rand are sort of distracted, but Egwene is there until she's grabbed by this character with the flaming eyes, flaming mouth. The Dark One, one of the Forsaken, we don't know yet. Yes, um, but definitely the big bad, yes. as we understand. This is this season's big bad that we're building towards. Um, this season, at least. So... Um, it was really unsettling to see that this figure is recurring in dreams and can follow our characters, specifically Rand. Rand is the only one we have seen dreams for. Right. We know that Matt and Perrin had the bat dream. Yes. But we don't, after this dream, we don't know that Rand, that Perrin or Matt have also had this dream. So I hope that they bring that up in the next episode because all three of them, all well, technically all five of them, should be having these dreams because the Dark One doesn't know which one's the dragon. So he's just casting a wide net. And right after that, um, Rand is awoken from his nightmare by Tom. Matt's not there. They run into the farmhouse. Everyone's dead in the farmhouse. And we're really not sure at first what happened because Matt is just standing there in sort of a catatonic state. He's got the Shadar Logoth goop coming out of his mouth. And he whispers, I see you. And the Fade comes out of the shadows. So we know that the Fade had been called by the Dark Fiend in the previous town. And we know that they can have these weird relationships with shadows. They can slink into them. They can emerge from them. Um, but at, in some small comfort, we learn that it wasn't Matt that had killed the farmer and their family. That it was this Fade... And we also get to see a little bit of the actual, like, my evil hates your evil, because th through the evil of the knife, Matt is able to say, I see you in the shadows where Nothing. no one yeah. should be able to see the fade. And then we get this battle scene 
or mini battle scene between Tom and the Fade, which in the books happened in the city of Whitebridge, and then in both the book and the TV series, Matt and Rand run away from this fight, leaving Tom to his fate. So that's a good parallel, and sort of what I meant by their sort of compacting mm-hmm. book elements. It's like a, how can we build this to get all the important pieces from the books, but also make it fit into a TV episode? Yes, and um, that's really the end of everything except the ASDI camp. So we see them gallop off, and that's it, and we plunge right into basically the final setup. Right. We get a nice moment between Lan and Nynaeve. He tells her what the prayer is that was left to her by her parents as they hid her. Presumably in the bandit raid that killed them and orphaned her. Yes. And so she Well, she said it was the last thing. Oh, yes. That they said to her. That is true. Yes. Um, So she's... She doesn't let him see how... That she actually is appreciative of knowing this and that it does give her comfort that these words are the last words of King Amond as he goes off to battle that he know he can't win. And that it's like, a, our children will feel our embrace because we are the land and they will hold the land. Mm-hmm. So it also fits into the Manetherin saga that the five Two Rivers people all sort of descended from. We get a scene between Leandrin and Karini and also, major points for the actress who plays Karini. She's fabulous. Yes. She sort of slaps down Leandrin after get, hearing that Leandrin is getting enough support from the other Aesidae to gentle Loghain without a trial. And she's like, of all people, you as a Red should know the rules and that we cannot vary from them. We were told to bring Loghain back to the tower, and that is what we will do. And Leandrin sort of drops this note that if if he does escape, it's within their oaths that they could gentle him. Yep, they're not going to break an oath if they are in danger or their warders are in danger. Right. That that gives them the cover to be able to be like, I had to defend against my life because otherwise he would have killed us all. Yep. So, we get that friction, we get this idea of past lives still coming back to teach us do better as a theme throughout the series we get the shield physics again and that Loghain is still pushing against the shields and eventually breaks free yeah we get this surprising chat between Moraine and Loghain like why should I believe you how do you think that you could possibly be the dragon and it's revealed that Moraine knows a little bit more about the prophecies, that the dragon is so strong that their ability to channel eclipses everyone else and makes everyone else look like a fire and they look like the sun. So it gives Karini time to blast Loghain. Moraine, Karini, and Leandrin work to shield him, but Karini ends up taking a hit and dying. Yeah. Which is another dimension to the warder bond. Her warder feels it, knows it. He's surprisingly sane. I thought he would have gone totally berserk, but he held it together until he saw Loghain and just leaped across the room with his axes. So that allows Loghain, the axes, when they push through the shield, which the warder can't see, so they don't know, 
but because parts of the axes are within the shield and that Loghain is trying to fight against, he shatters the axes, pieces go flying. Everyone really gets hit. Everyone gets hit. Lan's Except throat gets cut. Yes. Yes, she dodges. Yes. Plus five agility. Yes, she is fantastically lucky in that regard. And that's where it plays into her being one of the five with the pattern not letting something happen to her, I think. That um, the pattern interceded, and that's why we will see these five come across different instances of being lucky, I feel. Um, So I think that was her saving grace so that she wasn't hit. That's an interesting point because much, much later in the books you get this idea that if you can see a little part of what the pattern has, that you're safe until that happens. And one of the characters leans real hard into it and basically will get sort of smacked down by one of the others to be like, how dare you take all these risks? It doesn't matter that you think you know what's going to happen. It doesn't have to exist the way you think it will. Don't be so risky. Mm. Um, But yeah, that is a good point. It also allows Nynaeve to show off her ability. She ultimately is the strongest channeler of Sedar born in this age. And so when she sort of loses it, she rages out. She channels the power in this huge way. It becomes a radiance. Yeah. And it did bother me that Loghain could could see see it. it. He shouldn't. Yeah, he really shouldn't. So part of the we get a little bit more of the physics of the power, like I said before. We get it from the linking. We get it from pushing against shields. We get it from the brilliance that Nynaeve becomes. And she heals Lan. She heals Moraine. She heals Leandrin, even. I'm looking forward to when we get more... Uh, it's... What's the word? Not discernment delineation between the flows of the power because healing is described as very complex. Yeah. And what Nynaeve can do with healing is incredible. Like it's so elaborate and she does it without thinking almost, but she can do. She was focused mainly on Lan in that moment and everyone else got, um, like a backlash of healing. Yes. So I'm hoping that eventually we can see the complexity that Nynaeve does and like how complex healing is. But for right now in the show, as they're showing the power healing someone, it makes sense that it's just a, like a little misty glow. Yeah, and I am really interested to see what Leandrin's reaction is next episode. I hope we see that. Right. Because it really, from the earlier scene, made it seem like she's making a play. For Nynaeve to be a red. Yes. And trying to invite her and like, come to our tent, no boys allowed, and... Which is a thing, like, yes. if you are an Aja that brings a really strong channeler into the tower, that sort of gives your Aja a little bit more clout. It's not clear that everyone can tell that Nynaeve can channel. They should. Right. Like, that's part of the properties of being a channeler, that... It's not quite as present in the show, but Moraine can clearly tell that Egwene can, and she knows that Egwene is quite strong, because in her chat with Lan, Lan asks, is Loghain stronger than Egwene? Mm -hmm. And Moraine can't necessarily tell, um, 
women's growth in the power sort of you, you can sense how strong they'll be from the get-go they just can't meet, reach that max until they train for quite a while versus a man his strength goes by leaps and bounds and you can't really get a sense for how strong he is until he stops growing mm. um, but and, yeah and they all should have sensed that Nynaeve is a really powerful channeler which makes sense for why Leandrin wanted beyond getting info on Moraine that should have been why Leandrin was so interested in hers to get extra brownie points at the tower for drawing in someone who could be so powerful yeah um, but it's like it's a surprise to everyone so. yeah and that's our episode we end on Nynaeve and well eventually the remaining Aesidae all well, wink yes. through Leandrin Sorry, I jumped ahead but yes they gentle Loghain we get this Loghain knows what's happening and he is basically sobbing because he can no longer touch the power we see this sort of explosion of darkness, darkness come yeah. out of him and the corruption left by the taint should stay with him that doesn't go away when you're gentled mm. um and the question of can we even get rid of the taint is not raised um but it is an interesting question to figure out like because of one person's actions the dark one did this can is it possible to even cleanse something as immense and unknowable as the power yeah um so if it, it's unclear if in the show Loghain retains the corruption or not. Um, but we finally get the ASDI linked, which should have been happening from the get-go. It should have been. They should have been working together to shield him. Yes. Other little notes that were fun or, like, that we noticed. One of the greens, we think, is from Sheenar. She has a top knot, which mm. is part of their fashion, just like Tara Bonner's, like Leandrin, have lots of little braids. So that was sort of a fun note. We saw that Alana still had her bells, which was nice. Um, yeah, those are some of the... All the costuming is just so good. It is. I think I made a note that the music is so good. I think in previous episodes we talked about... Daniel Henney and Rosamund Pike being great, like well cast, duo. well acted. Yeah. And individually too, yeah. I think they're pretty stellar. Yeah. So Daryl. Did you find a woolhead of the week, as they say? Oof. I I think I did. I think it's Leandrin. Oh. My woolhead is Leandrin because she made a heavy handed play. And it did not work out. Um, she eventually got what she wanted, which was gentling Loghain on the spot. Um, she pr did not get it the way she wanted, though. Oh, when you mention her making a heavy-handed play, I thought you were talking about Nynaeve, and Nynaeve no, she through the, it. Yes, I, that was the heavy-handed play, oh, okay. was for Nynaeve. Um, that's why she's a Woolhead of the Week. Because gotcha. it was so transparent, and <laughs> even my name is like, thank you, next. <laughs> I think mine is, for all the Aesidae, they, A, it looked like they were killing people with the power, which I feel like they could have distracted the army and, like, a few lightning bolts to send them scurrying. If they had gone back to that, it could have saved lives and not tarnished the reputation as... Aesidai killing people with the power. 
But also the linking thing bothered me. If you're going to make it a thing where everyone can pool their strength through one person, you should be doing have done that from the beginning of the episode with all of them. Yes, being combining used to, their powers. To, yes, to shield Loghain. Yes, instead of just relying on Alana, Karini, and Leandrin. Yep, I agree. All right, so uh, um, presumably we'll get an episode this Friday. Who knows if they'll drop it early again? I think they dropped it because of the American holiday. Yes, they wanted to make sure that people who had a ton of time off had an even more time to consume this episode and sort of get that buzz going for it. And I think this episode definitely achieved that. And deserved it. It was a very well done episode. Yeah. Usually I can get a little bored by battle scenes. They balanced everything really nicely. And side note, points for Alana. Like, she knows what works with the power and she does it multiple times. She's not like Moraine where she's like, I want to attack in each of these different ways. Yeah. Granted, we probably needed to see all the different things you can do with the power, but I'm glad that Alana was just like, this works, I'm going to keep doing it. Yep. All right, so everyone, um, make sure to follow us on social media. We are at Two Rivers Two Takes on Instagram. Join our community. Let us know what you think of the episode. We're very eager to hear your thoughts on what you think of it. Yeah, and join us here next week when we will be covering episode five. Absolutely. See y'all later. Bye.